I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Comic books are such a weird little pocket of this large corporate portfolio where you have major media companies and then both of these major media companies have this tiny, mostly not super profitable publishing empire that is mostly just an IP farm to them. And, you know, I... You just don't know how much attention they actually pay to it. I think that as far as other things, I mean, I mean, you look at it's like Disney. Disney owns Marvel Comics, but I don't think they pay that much attention to stuff that comes out under Marvel Comics unless something becomes a massive headache. You know, the same way that Warner Brothers kind of ignored DC Comics until all the Eddie Berganza stuff came out and then they realized they had to do damage control. Or Batman showed his wang. <laughs> yeah, that was that that was one that probably had a number of really stupid corporate meetings. Um <laughs> How much can we show? <laughs> yeah, too much. there was probably a real decision that came down around that. And the this is the thing that's so can, weird is Can we show part of, of the shaft? The, can we show part of the shaft? Is there need to be a yeah, foreskin? I mean, is a foreskin too much? <laughs> Without foreskin, I don't know. What's more controversial? Cut or uncut? Yeah. I think if there's one thing we do know from that issue of Batman Damned, it's that Batman is circumcised. <laughs> he's and, Catholic. Well, that um, makes sense. Catholic. He's the son of a doctor. Yeah, his dad was. You think his dad did it himself? I think so. Casey, oh, did man. you did you have to? Maybe it's too personal for you. Or did you have? Did you do that with your kids? No, it's funny because my my wife's Jewish and her her family on her mother's side is all Jewish and uh, the 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 decision essentially was is is it necessary is it medically necessary and I had felt for philosophical reasons that it wasn't necessary and our doctor was like it's not necessary in fact I tell people not to do it unless they believe unless their beliefs say it should be necessary and I was like well I don't need any other evidence than my pediatrician telling me that so I remember with our son the the they have a doctor who, like, that's his thing, right? And, what a uh, job. <laughs> and we, and, and when, when they were discussing that with us, they said, well, what do you, like, what do you want to do? And, and I said, well, I mean, do you have, like, a book or something, like, like for haircuts? I mean, I don't really know what I'm dealing with here. I mean, it's, he says, well, you know, sometimes you could leave just a little or, like, I'm just, and I just said, you know what? <laughs> this discussion's taken too long. No, this is ridiculous. I a little off the top of the sides. I mean, we, <laughs> you have to cut no it jagged so it's like the Jughead crown. A fade. You yeah, need a, you need a fade, know. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah fade. Uh, uh, the only it, other point uh, we don't need to belabor the the comedy behind circumcision, but the uh, Cameron and I were in a birthing class before our first son was born, and uh, uh, that that eventually after you know they show the the harrowing childbirth videos where you see it for the first time. Yeah, and you, you and everyone else is just kind of does that uh, that. Uh, reaction like oh my god uh you got that over with and then they're sort of discussing then you discuss like what could go wrong with your baby so you could be prepared and then it was sort of the other sort of non-trivial stuff 
And of course, the circumcision dis- dis- the happened, and someone and the lady was the same way. She was sort of very, she was very Switzerland about it. Um, she was like, some people have their traditions. The research says the research says this, and then there was a small discussion that started with there are countries in the world that are starting to make laws fr- frowning on, just like there are countries in the world that make laws to make it so they do not slice the clitorises of. Uh, of baby girls that they don't circumcise and Germany is one of them and the other guy that I knew was Jewish in in the class was very angry and he said yes and Germany is known for being very tolerant (laughs) (laughs) and that was the end of that discussion (laughs) wow you know what sucked about um, when my wife and I had to do that was every guy myself not included thankfully saw these tours and and uh films as their opportunity to act to like break out their tight too you know right, what i mean like right. wisecrack at everything yes, yes like we would we took a tour of the of the uh of the hospital rooms and everyone's like does it have wi-fi can i get the game on this and then they do that stupid look at i know mike you you're probably well familiar with with seeing this look where people like look around and they smile and smirk and it's like they're asking for you to to laugh with them and they're making yeah. eye contact with everybody to make sure that you guys see how funny this is, right? <laughs> yeah. Every, yeah. And every usually dad. you get awkward silence. <laughs> yeah. The t- Those yeah. guys are not was... the comedians that they want to be. <laughs> no, no. Can we get Wi-Fi in here? Can I name my baby Wi-Fi? <laughs> nice. oh, get, get me out of here. Get me out of here. <laughs> I have never seen something like that land. I have never <laughs> seen that look. I, I think the worst it doesn't ever for, for me the worst is the people who want to be the uh uh you know nine o'clock showing at the movie theater opening night or whatever movie theater comedians and like of course everyone's been in a movie theater where someone says something and it's hilarious um but m- most times maybe nine out of ten times it's like Ugh, I don't like you're awful and then when it's someone who's right next to you which is what happened uh. one of the last times I was watching Blade Runner I don't know why someone I don't even remember what he screamed out but he had some replicant joke and I was like god I wish I was sitting somewhere else <laughs> The worst part is even in the event that they tell that one funny joke, they always push their luck and they try to go for more. And it always gets worse right away. And you're just like, oh, God, nobody wants this. Nobody ever wants this. Because can can that person who wants to do, do their tight five right now over a movie, <laughs> um, have they ever in- encountered a scenario where they wanted somebody else to keep going? Because I'm going to guess probably not. <laughs> everyone always thinks they're the exception to this, right. that they're the funny one, that everyone else is bad. Uh, and it's just like, you know what? If you were really that great, you'd do that professionally. And if you did that professionally, you'd know not to do this. <laughs> it it, it is a room a, of, oh, of, of like uh, Southwest flight attendants and best man speeches. You know, it's yeah. that whole... <laughs> If uh, if anyone's ever been to an amateur um, co- comedy stand-up comedy night, you know that even people who are somewhat good at it are not good at it. Most of them are right. so bad that they have to work for years to be able to get to the point when they are actually good at it, even if they start as funny people. And if you're starting from being a not funny person, the, that gap is just impossible to close. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like I feel like you're making a confession, Casey. I, you know what? I've I've never I've never my, like never had the desire whatsoever to tr- to th- try to think that I could be a stand-up comedian at all. Mostly because uh, if you're a stand-up comedian and you stammer, it doesn't work, right? You have to have if you're a great comedian, you have to have amazing fine control over your delivery. Stammerers just don't work all that well. So for me, I knew just right out, just out of the gate, not going to happen. You stammer. Yeah, I stammer a little bit. Um, Mike should know that. You said you and Mike, Mike sound like professionals. Mike's the Ebert, and I'm the Siskel. So, <laughs> and not in the obvious By the way, way. And we're both dead now. <laughs> yes. have, have you have you guys read? There's a great um, Kindle short that's the oral history of Siskel and Ebert. No, that sounds awesome. Um, they are so petty with one another at times. It is. I can vouch uh, for that. <laughs> Oh, you met? Have you met them or something? Or did you meet them? <laughs> no, this is going to sound strange, but I, uh, when I was in high school, my mom used to have a satellite dish, like the old school satellite dish, not like these these fancy cityfied uh, direct TV <laughs> types, but the kind that would actually go, <laughs> and you'd have to <laughs> aim it at an actual satellite. <laughs> yeah, you had to t- hit, hit the button on the yeah. on the remote control to say what satellite you wanted it to be on, and then each satellite would have a number of channels on it, and some of these channels would be strange, where you would just click to one of them, and rather than being like a broadcast channel... It would seem to be just a series of commercials all in a row of the same commercial with like regional variants, like a bunch of Hellman's mayonnaise commercials all in a row. And maybe at the end they have the name of a specific supermarket, but it was all of them in a row, a different supermarket each time sort of thing. And I came across one of those and it was apparently the raw footage of Siskel and Ebert. uh, Recording a series of commercials where they would name drop the name of the the broadcast channel that would be airing their show like oh turn into kcpq channel 13 at sunday at the end and there was a lot of raw footage ones where if one of them would fuck up the line the other guy would just pounce on it (laughs) anything any any slight error and that guy was right there to go oh you just oh way to fuck it up and and gene siskel taking every opportunity to take a shot at ebert's weight like and it was and i watched like like half an hour of this of just all of these commercials cuz they're on so many networks and it was the weirdest thing but i don't i don't know how i found it while going through cuz there's literally hundreds of these channels but you could couldn't really tell after watching it how much these guys liked each other or not. Well, Siskel would do things like cancel Ebert's interviews with people to scoop him. <laughs> or uh, um, he'd sabotage him on purpose. And uh, there's this great story that they tell in the book where um, Siskel wrote a note, handed it to Astorius and said, can you hand it to Ebert? And the note is from the quote unquote from the captain requesting that Ebert go to the cockpit to fly the pl- to go fly the plane with him or something like that. <laughs> so Ebert gets up and starts knocking on the door and it was like, what are you doing? And Ebert says, well, I have this note. The captain says he wants me to visit the cockpit. And they're like, no, no, that's not, <laughs> that's, that's not true at all. And so, and so Siskel's breaking up, you know, in like in, in laughter, just cracking up crazy watching his, his co-host get humiliated in front of all these people. Cause that's, that's what he would do. Oh man, I just <laughs> like, 
I I can't visualize that style of friendship. If that's what it I'm is. not sure it's a French style of friendship. I, I don't know what you would call it. It was like I don't the, know. There's I don't know. There's just certain people that just they just everything is a prank and seems horribly mean spirited, and then the other person laughs, and that from that point forward, I'm confused <laughs> because I would hate that person. <laughs> well, I think you the, obviously they're they're sort of. Their continuing fame and economic sort of, you know, their meal ticket was keeping this thing together. So part of it was probably a living hell having to do it. But part of it is like, well, hell, this is what we do, you know. So I, oh, I, sure. I, I, I didn't read um, Ebert's biography, but I did listen to some of the interviews that he done. He was doing interviews with his like little voice machine as when he couldn't speak. And I think he... Rem- Ebert remembered Siskel very fondly. Um, like it took them like de- decades, but then he became they became very good friends. So basically, it sounds like they just hated each other for a long time and then became friends. I think it was a mutual. It was probably the. I'm guessing it, it was it was just a hate of knowing that you will never be good on your own. <laughs> yeah. And constantly need and constantly and, and knowing that you constantly need this other person to achieve greatness, but not liking the person maybe, or just not liking the fact that you can't you can't be a solo act. Oh, the David Caruso syndrome. <laughs> Ooh. And and I think a part of it is Or David Spade. <laughs> <laughs> they they were just b- both great wordsmiths. And you, you know, Ebert prided himself on his Pulitzer and everything. Um, but then essentially they're just reduced to these hand gestures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they would pour their heart and souls into these reviews, but people just skimmed down or fast forwarded or whatever to just see if it was a thumbs up or a down. Well, yeah. It's so interesting because they were the people responsible. What is it, Mike, that we always talk about the no more rock stars um, sort yeah. of idea is that they were really the, they were really that, that KT boundary of film critics where, um, of course, there were film critics before Siskel and Ebert, but after Siskel and Ebert, everyone was considered like a Siskel and Ebert. And now that they are gone, there's no no one has risen up and become the new Siskel and Ebert. There's just thousands and thousands of movie critics, none of them with this sort of stature or reach as them. And they were, I would think, they were prisoners of their own success, not just because you said reducing like their entire profession into a binary choice. Um, but I mean, they, but I, I think they, I think they elevated, they popularized the idea that film critics were actually a thing instead of just some copy boy who prepares stuff in the, you know, the, the art section of the newspaper. Um, but I think that the, I think the idea is, is they probably felt they, what they reached a lot more people who would have never picked up a newspaper and read or a magazine and read a review um, and gave them a taste of what a film reviewer thinks about movies. Because um, I think people are still to this day under the misapprehension about what film critics actually are and what they do. Like, especially the whole the whole sort of... Well, you know that they, you know, Casey, they just collect checks from uh, 
Disney and then they dog on DC movies. That's exactly so you know that. That's exactly right. Well, that's any, exactly it. Anytime that's what happened with me, you have the you have the like the fanboys <laughs> going like, why do critics why do critics seem to hate movies so much? And you're like, well, they can't. You would never become a, a film critic if you hated movies. In fact, they have yeah. to. You have to have loved movies to want to become a film critic to begin with. So there's just a simple misapprehension that they're like these like nefarious like hobgoblins that are just there to try to destroy things that you love because that's their job. <laughs> so well, that's the ugly part of it is that you look at, uh, we've made, we've gone round after round on this before on the show, but the uselessness of a lot of these YouTube movie critics who seem to think that the highest art form of criticism is to destroy a thing rather than to, dive into and dissect a thing to find out what the value is. Instead, they just think of it as ponage or whatever, and that critics are just there to hate on things or they're there to be bribed. And the thing is so silly about that is I don't think there's any one film critic that can destroy a movie. No. I mean, Siskel and Ebert may be the last people who had the kind of power to make somebody just not go see something. But I see a lot of film criticism reduced to Nick Mickey bullshit like, you know, Cinema Sins, which I think is one of the worst channels on YouTube. But it's not about, oh, well, you know, that's not realistic or, you know, oh, you could totally, <laughs> you know, nitpicking bullshit apart rather than talking about the one thing that these people never seem to talk about, which is thematic choices. What is this movie about, regardless of whether it's realistic that this happened or, well, you know, that doesn't, you know, that kind of bullshit, any of that has a lot less to do with, you know, what is this movie about? What is it trying to say? Uh, does it say it well? Is it made well? Uh, does it say things accidentally? Does it make you feel, so, does it make you something, feel something, which I think is probably the most important part. Exactly. And you think uh, if art doesn't make you feel something, it really has failed as a piece of art. The last review I ever did was for Age of Ultron. And I dared to give that a B. Um, (laughs) And it was for a comic site. And I will admit, I did summarize the plot a little too much. I got a little spoilery. But um, because I was making a point of like you do all this with Black Widow, and then she's reduced to nothing in the in the sequel. Essentially, she her role dies out. The recorder's in, and then I would say like you have all these flash, you have all these scenes that are just setting up other movies, but that don't add anything to the movie at hand. And I mean, I can clearly see you're planting seeds for Civil War because you're planting seeds for Civil War, not driving the story that I'm supposed to be watching. And uh, you know, I like I was oh hate this guy's a hater. Um, Look at past reviews. He likes leaving Las Vegas. You know, stuff like, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I just um, I just couldn't take the criticism of the criticism. Like, just I I was paid to give my opinion, um, not handsomely. And Disney even got my name wrong on the, <laughs> on, on the entrance bracelet. Uh, Danny Gutierrez had a great time, apparently. And... Um, yeah, just uh, that was the last time I did. I just couldn't take. I got I got tired. I, got really tired. Well, I think there's a weird kind of factionalism that when criticism meets fandom culture and fandom culture very rarely tends to act in good faith because 
you get those arguments like, oh, well, this is not something that the critics are going to like. This is for the fans. Oh, I and hate that. For the expression it's bullshit. The death of any creativity whatsoever. That it's for the fans is such a bullshit remark because it basically just means this movie is for people who were predisposed to liking it. <laughs> and yeah. that's not really doesn't mean this anything. Mo- this movie is for Hall H at Comic-Con. Yeah. What's the fucking I, point? I remember that, getting you know? into an argument with someone about saying, like, I don't know why Marvel goes to Hall H. Because why spend all this money on promotions and publicity when this these are the people you've already got going to see your movie. You should be putting this movie this money toward something toward reaching an audience that you normally wouldn't. Exactly. That's the point of advertising. Uh, you, it, you, advertising is not just about uh, getting the people who are already going to go there. Um, but there's this idea that that's who it's for, that we have to give a special treat to these hardcore fans and get them, I don't know, maybe their word of mouth. But it's like those people are talking about Star Wars, whether you show them a trailer or not. All you have to do is announce that a Star Wars movie is coming out and you've got those people buying a ticket, probably multiple tickets. Uh, it's it's everybody else. It's kind of why I think it's a better deal for a Star Wars movie to unveil its first teaser at the Super Bowl than it is at Comic-Con. Sure. Because there's going to be at least somebody new. I guess that was a thing with, you know, DC's New 52, that the the one thing they did really right was they actually advertised comic books outside of comic books, and it worked. They then then the new fifty two sort of petered out and they stopped advertising, but for a lot of those people who gave some of those comics incredible sales figures compared to what uh, any mainstream comic book had had in decades, a lot of that came about because some of those people didn't even know they still made comic books. I have people who I know personally who are shocked to find out they still make those things, and if they didn't know me, they wouldn't even know that. So. I have to wonder what, you know, these companies are thinking. Get outside of this weird cul-de-sac that you've put yourself in. You have to go where the fans aren't to try to create new people. Otherwise, you're just going to get this feedback loop that you get over and over with fandom. And it's, you know, don't bother advertising to them because those people will follow you when you put that trailer out anywhere. It doesn't, you don't have to go to Comic-Con. You don't have to release it on the thousand clickbait sites. Those clickbait sites will follow you no matter where you go. But I guarantee you that nobody who isn't already a nerd gives a shit about anything on CBR, you know, who gives a fuck? (laughs) They're not going there. So you kind of have to go where where people are. And speaking of that, I just think it's a good time for us to introduce our guests, since <laughs> these are about as unstructured as you can be. Uh, we have uh, talking with us. He doesn't have a podcast, but he's very podcast adjacent. And I, do you still write for Emmys.com? I do. I just um, I just had a, uh, speaking of comic books, I just had a uh, an article published with Robbie Amell about uh, the series Upload. All right. Excellent. So we are, of course, talking to our good friend, Mr. David Ace Gutierrez. Um, Welcome aboard. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I think the last time you were here, we were talking about, uh, we were just gushing all over Highlander. I think I would last say time gushing. we had our bashing, <laughs> no gushing, gushing. We were crying. No, almost. no, 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 no. I actually just reheard the episode and um, play back the tape. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. 
boy, uh, Mr. Hatcher was well. Hatcher is a good name. Mr. Hatchet should be. It was. was, He he hated that. I think you legitimately confuse Greg. I I don't know how. how, I I I if your if your goal is to keep him confused and guessing, then congratulations, sir. Um. But uh, we should also, before we forget, oh, uh, yes, thank right, our right, episode right. sponsors. We have thirteen of them now, Casey. <laughs> well, that's amazing. It keeps going up. Yeah, we got We're, two new ones. We don't. This we month. don't have rats leaving this ship. So that's, the rats are not leaving our our ship's not sinking. It's growing. It's floating. <laughs> we have. Are you saying that our rats are well fed <laughs> <Yes>. and comfortable? <laughs> no, we love uh, our rats. We, we we love our rats. Um, thank you, episode sponsors. We want to thank all of you, Larry Brunswick. Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Jem Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, Calzone, uh, Carol and Dave Brulette, and our newest episode sponsors, Wim the Belgian, who is the brother of, of Tom the Belgian, <laughs> so I guess they are the Belgian brothers, future tag team champions, <laughs> and uh, Misa the Barbarian, who's joined us as well. So thank you, all of you. Uh, we love you lots, and if you want to become an episode sponsor, go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or radio versus the Martians.com. Uh, there's a button on the right side. Click that, join us, and uh, be join the hallowed ranks of those wonderful people. That's awesome. Uh, what, 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 what does podcast adjacent mean? Exactly. <laughs> well, you're on a lot of podcasts. You are a guest of more podcasts of anyone that I know who doesn't have a podcast yourself. Well, that's why. Because <laughs> you're, you're a hermit crab. <laughs> well, so you're just... I have horrible social anxiety and imposter syndrome. Um, so you're, uh, you're a podcaster already. <laughs> so, I mean, not to tell tales out of school, but Mike and I privately discuss with Mike my uh, mental health issues. And uh, one thing I'm great at, and you could ask my best friend, Rob Kelly, best friend in quotes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is, uh, is, it, is, is I'm, I'm great at critiquing other people's work and saying what they should do better. And they're really good ideas. <laughs> so that's sort of how I end up on people's podcasts is just, I think, by saying, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? And then I just become friends. Well, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't, it's it's not just nepotism, not just nepotism that drives people <laughs> into our radar. Obviously, you have to be well-spoken, have great ideas, and you definitely do. Well, so um, I wanted to say, this is, Mike and I were talking about this yesterday. I felt it was so awesome that we needed to bring it on the show, Mike. Specifically, we were talking about, um, you know, we, were, we always like to fantasize about how would you do it better. And we were saying how the John Rambo character from starting with first blood evolving to the most recent and hopefully final john rambo movie until they reboot it with someone else who's not sylvester stallone uh is it a liam hemsworth (laughs) oh god (laughs) until they until they soft rebooted or whatever um that uh you know after the first john rambo movie john rambo becomes instead of this sort of human three-dimensional wounded kind of a character that also happens to be a badass he becomes a superhero who is totally invulnerable and i think mike you can say what your what your sort of idea was for how you reform john rambo in the second movie well i think it's a recognition that um and maybe we should save this for a a, a 
panel on Rambo, but I think a recognition that he's actually affected by the shit that happens to him, that um, Rambo goes from somebody who is traumatized and beaten down by the stuff he feels he's forced to do, the stuff that he he knows how to do, the stuff that he's been reshaped into doing, um, and how much that hurts him. He is not happy. It's not like he's you know, I'm back, baby, when he starts beating the shit out of, like, Oregon cops. He's he's not back in his zone. He's back in a really shitty zone or a place where he was traumatized and horrified. And he's good at this one thing, but that one thing fucks him up. And then we go to the sequels where it just doesn't affect him at all. That he's just like, eh, this is what I do. I can fire an explosive arrow at a guy and it doesn't affect me at all. I can go into the worst most war-torn parts of the world and fight Soviets and... Help the uh, Taliban. (laughs) Help the Taliban. And uh, just, like, all of this shit that just goes down and it doesn't affect him. And the fact that he's in that prison at the beginning of the second movie, you think there's a point where he finally has a moment of peace, that maybe he has the structured life that he needs and maybe he sees a psychologist in jail on a regular basis. But this guy, this Colonel Troutman pulls him out of a place where he might be experiencing some kind of healing and drags him back into the place that traumatized him. And how is Troutman not the villain of the movie? And if the the series would acknowledge that, that this guy's a monster who created him to be this thing, uses him to be that thing and throws him at his problems and does, has, does his dirty work for him. Um, it just seems like there has to be a point where Rambo realizes that. And I think the, the example I used is like the end of Blade Runner, where there'd be this moment where, you know, it's Dr. Tyrell and Roy Batty, where uh, Colonel Troutman's just like, oh, my God, you're just you're a beautiful thing. Oh, my God, you're amazing. And then Rambo just crushes his fucking head. <laughs> uh, that's what I wanted to be moving towards, because it's just so fucking awful. You're like, this guy is not your friend. If, if you're going to go into Afghanistan on a suicide mission to find Colonel Troutman, it should be that I want to kill him before the Soviets do. <laughs> That's He belongs, his ass belongs to me. <laughs> he did become sort of um, domified, right? Um, like a Fast and Furious where he be, he became a superhero. Yeah. Well, he's totally he's totally invulnerable and in First Blood, the thing that makes him interesting is his vulnerability. Um because exactly. he may be he may be invulnerable in the sense that he outclasses, you know, sheriffs and rural sheriffs and uh weekend weekend warrior national guardsmen. Um he definitely like obviously outclasses them, but he he's He's vulnerable emotionally in ways that you don't see, you certainly didn't see in sort of late 70s, mid late 70s action heroes, um, and you never saw for 80s action heroes. So it's just so interesting seeing that character move from, actually it makes more, he makes more sense of like a 70s character because you move into the 80s and you're then your prototypical Arnold action heroes where they're just like badasses. They, uh, you know, their their vulnerability is that somebody who is an innocent person gets in the way and they've got to get out of their way to save them. They don't really have they're not really vulnerable in the way that they have real human emotions because they're just robots. So we kind of well, they have to be in those <laughs> yeah. in that genre. I mean, we said this about Total Recall when we did that episode is that there is a scene where the bad guys catch up with Arnold in this like shopping mall area on an escalator. And all of these innocent people are getting murdered around Arnold. 
and he doesn't care because <laughs> he's in a he's in a Paul Verhoeven movie, and these guys are getting just opened up with this just cacophony of squibs and fake blood. And he doesn't feel anything. There's not a moment later where he's just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, looking at the blood on his hands or on his jacket or something, because that's not the kind of movie we're watching. But the weird thing with Rambo is he starts out as a character who does feel those things and become one who doesn't. And I think that's just the path we've seen of a lot of Stallone movies, these franchises, these two key franchises that he's a part of, whether it's Rocky and Rambo. They very much start out as very 1970s style series and become very quickly 1980s style series where, then, you know. No, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, but Rocky does have, I mean, you look at Creed, the character yeah. of Rocky does, and Rocky Balboa to some extent, although he is just, I guess you can say he's still kind of super heroic because no one would survive a fight with like a 25 year old like that guy. Right. But, yeah, uh, seriously. But, yeah. um, you know, he does, he, his appearances in Creed are all about vulnerability at that point. Exactly. I think they kind of refound the original Rocky in the Creed movies. And that's got a level of self-awareness with, with uh, Stallone that I like, where if you look at the one previous to that, um, I've usually given it a lot of praise that they come up with a lot of, let's just say, Moment, you know, let's just say little little things that happen to make it more realistic for him to fight like a twenty year old guy right. uh, and not get destroyed right away or have his knee go out in the first round. Um, but you know, he's still a guy that's that's holding his own against a guy who's a third his age, and they don't do that in in the Creed movies. They just go, okay, Rocky's allowed to be an old man now. He's not – I mean, maybe Mickey was a fighter at some point, but you never think about Mickey getting into the ring and Burgess Meredith taking down, like, Clubber Lang. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, but – That should have happened. <laughs> it's kind of, it is sort of that transition from Rocky 1 to Rocky 2 where this is a movie about a guy who knows he can't win – uh, just trying to hang in there versus Rocky two was a movie where he faces the same opponent, but he gets to win this time. And then you get into, you know, three and four, which kind of weirdly play out like Mike Tyson punch out opponents where he just has to figure out the trick to beat them. A secret um, code. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he has to figure out, Oh, this is what I got to do to fight Clubber Lang. And it, there's a formula there. It's a formula I really like. Like Creed Two is is a sequel to Rocky Four, but it's really a remake of Rocky Three mm-hmm. because it's all about oh you're the champ, everything's great, and then this new guy comes into town, beats the fuck out of you, and then there's a movie about you learning a lesson and figuring out a trick, uh, having a bunch of training montages, and then coming back. And in a weird way, I think. This is a, a remake of Rocky Three, but it's a it's a superior remake of Rocky Three, where it's just straight up a better movie overall. Uh, even though it doesn't have Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in it, which <laughs> usually are a big selling point with me. Right, your pasta like mania that, that franchise. That is the biggest yeah. biggest '80s duo you could have in a movie like that. The only people missing are like Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, looking at Creed as a as an idea where you can bring back a a a treasured Stallone character in a way that 
sort of works dramatically uh, and works sort of cinematically as well. Um, it makes you wonder like how fucking far off the rails Rambo Last Blood went. And I don't, I know Mike didn't see it. David, did you see Rambo Last Blood? No, no. Okay. No. I, the, the one thing I'll <laughs> I say about- I was warned. The one thing I will say about Rambo Last Blood, and it's, it is fascinating looking at uh, it and Dark, Terminator Dark Fate side by side because of how diametrically uh. opposed they are on this point, is aside from two token characters- that are close to sort of emotionally close to John Rambo in Last Blood. Um, every single Mexican person or person of Mexican descent is vile and evil and immoral and is just deserving of utter destruction. And it is oh, so shit, you're onto us. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is so shamelessly, horribly regressive um, that it's just sickening. It's it's just straight up sickening. It's not even like watching like an S. Craig Zoller movie where the characters, the you know you know as like in uh, what was the latest one with, um, uh, what's his name, racist McF- racist McPhee. God damn it! Why am I forgetting his name? Mel Gibson, the the latest <laughs> the latest S. Craig Zoller movie where Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are both just racist cops. Or whatever. It's not even like a. a you could have just said Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the uh, um. Do you know which? Oh, under up concrete, David. Do you know which movie I'm talking about? Something something. No, concrete. but I'm hoping he says like that does the azucar or something like that <laughs> to a female cop that he's a dick to. Uh, no, no, he doesn't. Oh. Um, oh, dragged dragged across concrete is the name of the movie, and this is the director who did Whoa, Bone. Bone what? Tom- That's the title. But yeah, dragged across concrete. The, it's this is uh. the same director who did, did Bone Tomahawk. So this guy is like oh. a is a very talented director, and so he's making this movie. Uh, about cops in, I think it's Detroit. I want to say it's Detroit. I can't remember. And basically every every cop or cop-adjacent person in the movie, including Don Johnson, the, pol- the sort of the police chief, and uh, Mel Gibson's wife, are uh, espousing pretty awful, not just pretty awful, just straight awful, just like straight up racism. Like the kind you'd expect that a um, an intern at Fox News probably pans on their own time and you know turns it in and it's like yeah this would this would play perfect with that but the movie even though the movie has these characters and says all these reprehensible things and per- it should be part of the conversation you talk about it there are other characters in the movie and there are other things happening in the movie that make you be like be like well like these are these are these aren't anti- these aren't heroes they aren't anti-heroes they aren't quite antagonists either so you're not at least giving the moral authority to Mel Gibson's racist cop um to to have it be like a stand-in for the director's own opinions on things in last blood it pretty much is just the whole point of the of the movie that like people who come from Mexico are automatic are automatically morally compromised and uh, you know, murderous criminals and thugs, and it's a whole way just to, you know, to invite a few dozen heavily armed cartel guys to John Rambo's ranch so he can, he's been setting up a kill box for 30 years just so he can murder a few, a bunch of brown people underneath his ranch. And it's so like, it's Texas. What, what, yes, the, what yeah. the fuck, what is this movie? <laughs> what, it, what is the, what was the driving force behind doing it? Um, and I, I don't, I'm not even sure, I'm not even sure, it might have just been like you can make you can make John Rambo a character that uh has sort of some sympathy and you give him 
um, the type of vulnerability you have in Last Blood, and it's and it becomes complicated because John Renbo is also a movie that has some politics in it that are provocative, right? They're provocative because they're about what well what, what John Rambo. I had mean, to- if you look at the the Rambo movies. Um- after the first one, after First Blood, there's always kind of a right-wing grievance politics oh, in them. for sure. For sure. And I think that at least this is accurate to the <laughs> franchise as a whole, where it's like, well, what is it that your obnoxious dad who wears in the tucked-in <laughs> shirt with, like, love it or leave it? What is the shit he's angry about? What email forwards is he sending you? Oh, okay, let's send Rambo after that. Like, in the first one, it's just like, they didn't let, you know, the the Rambo 2, you know, it's basically, oh, they didn't let us win in Vietnam. It's like, let's make a movie where Rambo wins in Vietnam. Oh, let's have him beat up the Russians in Afghanistan. Oh, let's have him kill a bunch of people in, in Southeast Asia. Oh, in let's Burma. have let's have him kill Mexican cartels. And I love how you mentioned that um, there's one or two not racist caricatures in that movie, because... You know, some of them, I assume, are good people. So you have to have that in there as sort of this moral failsafe. Right, right. To protect you from from charges of racism. So that, to me, having those one or two characters, to me, says you know exactly what you're doing and you're providing a little bit of cover because some of them are good people and some of them are some of my best friends. Right. And that, you know, it's the same bullshit. And those little actions to me are far more telling than any of the overtly racist shit because it tells me that you know you're a piece of shit and you're providing yourself cover. It's just disappointing to me because there's no shortage of of sort of modern American action movies who the spooky bad guys are sort of Mexican cartel guys. But earlier in the year that, I think it was 2019 that Last Blood came out, I think. Earlier in the year, there was uh, Miss Bala, which was a uh, which was a movie where the main character is a Mexican-American girl who, um, who basically has to become a badass to rescue her friend. And does and it's a very much a fish out of water movie, um, and it does it is essentially almost the same plot, but with the, since the character is not John Rambo, uh, John Rambo the he- the American hero, and it's someone who is just like a teenage girl <laughs> thrown into it, it's far more interesting of an idea of being like, how do you engage with create characters that have a struggle against? Oh, I don't know, just like your bargain basement sort of like cartoon uh cartel bad guy but immediately when you add john rambo in there you have all of the baggage you have all of the white guy baggage along with it well it's all white guy baggage i mean it's it's a lot of the thing is like i we've said this before the most problematic thing that i love are revenge movies uh, especially because they all come from that sort of like suburban white guy dad grievances about like, blah, 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 blah. it's like, I like the movie Taken, but I know that's like suburban conservative white dad paranoia because it's just like, what? You're getting on a plane and going somewhere? And it's like the minute she gets off the plane, she's kidnapped by sex traffickers. I mean, this is like every horrible email forward turned into a movie. And of course, the dad is the guy who's going to beat the shit out of all of them. Um, it's, 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 oh man, again, it's the fucking worst. And the same thing with Death Wish and the Death Wish remake that they made didn't fix any of that stuff. And I think that if you're going to remake Death Wish at all, it might be worth actually saying something 
with Death Wish. And so always saying something different because a lot of these movies come out of that same fear of like young people, people of color in urban crime, where the lead character is someone who lives in a giant John Hughes house <laughs> outside of the city <laughs> and lives a super nice life until somebody from the big bad city comes and ruins them by, you know, raping or murdering their wife. And now they've got to strap on a oversized handgun and take care of things in the way that only uh, a middle-aged white guy with an unironic mustache can. <laughs> um, and it's the, it's the same thing. I really think if you're going to remake Death Wish, you have to refocus it. Uh, cast not a white guy. Cast like Forrest Whitaker as, you know, the doctor. Uh, Dr. Paul Kiersey, if you're going to make him a doctor or an architect or whatever. And have it be fucking Nazis that kill his family. Let's let's actually talk about a thing because you know, there aren't a lot of people that you know. You know, I I doubt the cartel is as dangerous to Americans as uh, the people on the right want to make them out to be, uh, because they sell their shit to Americans. They're not going to kill them in huge numbers unless you like come across them committing a crime. It's like the mafia. Um, it but the people want to have sort of kill crazy, murderous bad guys. And it turns out that's fucking Nazis. Those are the real danger in the United States. Those are the guys who are committing hate crime after hate crime after hate crime, who try to cover it up, who are driving their car into a group of nonviolent counter-protesters, who are harassing people on buses and, you know, how many times we have to get cell phone footage of these pieces of shit. Make them your bad guys. And you know what? I will not feel bad at all when Forrest Whitaker unloads on them with like a submachine gun. <laughs> That'd be the greatest movie ever. <laughs> you fucking do it. You know, and get get somebody uh, to refocus that movie away from the kind of racist roots of the subgenre of the revenge vigilante movies. Because it's always a middle-aged white guy. And it's always young people and long hairs and, and young black youth. And it's, let's just move away from that a little bit. You know, go fucking green room with this shit. Oh, and uh, <laughs> you could probably get somebody like, I really think the casting of Patrick Stewart as like a Nazi leader is pretty fucking great. Get somebody like that. Get somebody that you're used to seeing as sort of your surrogate internet dad and make him the Nazi. <laughs> Mr. Feeney from Tom um, Hanks. <laughs> no, oh, I was going to say Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, the voice of Kit. Oh, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Feeney. Oh my God. William Daniels. That's Have it. him just. Yeah. It'd just be so wonderfully uncomfortable. It's kind of like the dad from Boy Meets World being the racist dad in American History X. Was that him? That was him. Oh, it was him or is it the dad from Home Alone? I no, no. Get those two American, guys mixed up. Oh, I thought you were talking about Stacey Keach. No, not Stacey Keach. He That's was like the Nazi leader. Oh, okay. But um, Ed, Ed Norton's dad in that movie. Oh, yeah, 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 who, yeah. yeah. Is that the dad from Boy Meets World? I think so. I believe it is. We'd have to look it up. Okay. Well, let's just assume that it is. I just remember it was that or it was the dad from Home Alone. It was one of, Those guys look a lot alike. No, it wasn't John Hurd. But, it was not John Hurd. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, and I think that we're kind of at the point that we have so many of those kind of Rambo movies. It'd be kind of nice to not make Rambo movies. That would be my first choice. But if we have to make Rambo movies to at least do something new with it, when it isn't just a, I guess you could call it, he still got it type movie, <laughs> uh, where it's like, it's like that guy, but it's less realistic when he does action sequences and he doesn't take his shirt off now. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know, it, but it, you could tell he was getting old because in, was, I think it was just called John Rambo, right? The, yeah. Yeah. The, where he just kind of s- stood in a Jeep and just shot people with that <laughs> high powered machine gun as they ran up to him. Yeah. So he, his mobility was severely hampered at that point. It's, it's kind of, um, it's yeah. kind oh, of like, uh, seventies Marlon Brand, <laughs> so, Marlon Brando in what was the Frank Oz movie that had Ed Norton and Robert De Niro. Is it called the heist or something? Family business. No, not, not family business. This is like from 2000. It's about Robert De Niro being a thief in Toronto and, Ed Norton is a young guy, and Marlon Brando was the fixer, and uh, you could tell it was clearly the um, it's just like just like some of the latter '90s Steven Seagal is he, he's just like, can I just do this scene in a chair? <laughs> this is so weird. I'd like, <laughs> can we just do this scene sitting down, please? Because that's the only way I'm going to be able to make it through there. <laughs> has it, has any actor worked harder at not working than Marlon Brando? <laughs> Maybe Bruce Willis. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Well, he, wants to, be a, he wants to be a singer like that. Let's face it. He, he never wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be a musician. So. Yeah, we don't always get what we want. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a shame because he is such a fantastic actor. But wh- where where was the line? I, I don't I can't even I don't watch much. Bruce Were you talking Willis. about Willis or Brando? Bruce Willis. Where was the oh, line? Willis. I don't know where Marlon Brando lost it. But clearly for, you know. How many millions of dollars was he paid for, you know, about a half a day's worth of work on Superman? That was probably like where he's like, he's like, I could do anything yeah. now. But, but that's the thing with Brando and Superman is that I know for a fact, based on the 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 well-known fact that he was reading off of cue cards that people were holding up. And he still gives a really good performance as Jor-El that it is possible to not give a shit and still do your job well. Hmm. Uh, but Bruce Willis seems to be the counter argument of, no, I'm going to sleepwalk. I'm not going to raise my voice. Um, I'm just going to talk like this the entire time. And, you know, they can CGI my face on some shit later if I, they need me to do something. But, you know, with these, these Die Hard sequels, they forget that the thing that makes the Die Hard movies great is, one, the vulnerability of, of John McClane. But also the fact that he gets scared and freaks out a lot and gets hurt. And you get to see him panic in a way that you didn't see a lot of 80s action heroes panic. Harrison Ford had that same ability. Like, notice him in a fight in an Indiana Jones movie or in Blade Runner. He looks terrified a lot of the time. And that was something he did that not a lot of other people did. As, you know, Arnold and Stallone were typically stoic and... But Harrison Ford would get punched and look like he's dazed for a second or freak out. Um, he looks – you look at Harrison Ford at the end of Blade Runner when he's running from Roy Batty and he looks terrified. He's in a horror movie. And you look at Harrison Ford nowadays and it's hard to get him to do anything. It seems like he doesn't even want to raise his voice, which is what I really think the best part of The Force Awakens was, was – it must have just been the boatload of cash they wheeled up to his house, but he was trying again. And it was a reminder that Harrison Ford, when he wants to be, can be really good when he does things like raise his voice and put emotion into his dialogue. And you're reminded like, wow, you can do this still. Why haven't you been doing this since Air Force One? I would say his last great performance was Witness. Did you guys ever see that? I love Witness. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's a shot that's all done. Um, there's no dialogue at all. And it's just his shoulders. And it's how he's reacting to something. And you just see him go from, okay, 
time to kick some ass kind of a thing. And it's all just done with neck muscles and shoulders. And it, it's my favorite, all time favorite Harrison Ford moment. That's including all the Star Wars movies and all, yeah, all those Star Wars movies. Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I know Mike, Mike, Mike has a strong rule now about not discussing these things. So uh, I we, don't I don't want to yeah, talk about. Star Wars. I want to poke the beehive. <laughs> oh, I don't want to talk about. Mike Star and I Wars. talked about Star Wars for like four hours um, on Mike on, on Ryan Daly's show. We, we yeah. Mike and I just talked for Star Wars for like an hour two nights ago. So I'm sure you're. you're I know you're... it's like a fucking gravity well, and I just I want. I uh, see. Even right now, I'm trying to make it. We're not talking about Star Wars. We're talking about talking about Star Wars. Yeah. What were we supposed to discuss today? By, by, by the way, Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. God in heaven to make a man like Rambo. God didn't make Rambo. I made him. Who the hell are you? Sam Trotman. Colonel Samuel Trotman. Look, we're a little busy this morning, Colonel. What can I do for you? I've come to get my boy. Your boy? I recruited him. I trained him. I commanded him in Vietnam for three years. I'd say that makes him mine. I wonder why the Pentagon would send a full bird colonel down here to handle this. The Army thought I might be able to help. <laughs> well, I don't know in what way. Rambo's a civilian now. He's my problem. I don't think you understand. I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came here to rescue you from him. <laughs> <laughs>